Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about or largely inspired by the life and legacy of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the very brave, brilliant, young German pastor, moral philosopher, and Christian ethicist, who uh, during the rise of Nazism in Germany and Adolf Hitler uh, became one of the first and most prominent voices uh, on behalf of Protestant church leaders to speak out against what he saw as an evolving evil. And he was right in his predictions. Uh, Of course, in the end, he would surrender his life in that struggle. But in the process, he left to us just a wonderful body of work. And we talk about that. We talk about Bonhoeffer's personal experience in Nazi-era Germany. We talk about uh, his writings, his ideas, his insights, and how they apply to the exigencies, to the moral emergencies of our own day. And we do that in a number of different ways. Today, uh, we're doing it by bringing to you a recording of a talk that I gave at Temple Sinai here in Washington, DC. It's one of the most vibrant uh, Jewish communities in the nation's capital. And uh, it was kind of a multifaceted uh, morning. It was a Sunday. And at first, I talked a little bit about my book, the memoir, using a Bonhoeffer term, uh, Costly Grace, as its title. And I subtitled it, An Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope, and Love. And it's a very personal story. It's really a kind of autobiographical treatment of my own spiritual journey. And I was asked to talk about the book, so I started out that way. And in this segment, you'll hear my conversation with a room full of great people, a very uh, wonderful collection of participants over morning brunch on a Sunday. So I'm inviting you to join me at the brunch tables as I talk about costly grace and my family and my friends and a few enemies and my three conversions. First, to Christian faith. Secondly, to Ronald Reagan Republican religion. And then finally back to the Christ of the Gospels, and in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, which was very important to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and central to his theological understanding. So I talked to the group, I answered a few questions, and autographed a few books. And I invite you to join me in the room at Temple Sinai, uh, where I thank Steve Klitzman, my host, my official host of the day, and Rabbis Roos and Rosenwasser, who welcomed me to Temple Sinai. And I'm very grateful to them and to each person in that room. So here it is, 
a book talk at Temple Sinai in Washington, D.C. Welcome. In those days, uh, non-Jewish woman, previously married, suicide story. Let's just say it wasn't adding up to the <laughs> ideal <laughs> imagination for the family. And it caused a lot of tension. But as a result of that, my, my parents really had a disposition about religion that, you know, you make your own choices in life, you go out and explore it for yourself, and then you make your own decision on that. And they really absented themselves from any uh, discussion of, uh, or even definition of religion. So I was very much on my own, and as a teenager went out exploring happened upon the son of a Methodist minister uh, who invited me to church. And I had, you know, to that point, I was 16 years old. I'd never been to a church in my life. I tell this story in uh, my memoir, Costly Grace. And I was received not unlike I'm being received here today, very warmly uh, by that church family. And it filled a great vacuum in my life. And so I returned again and again, and, uh, and I don't mind telling you, though uh, I, I came to the conclusion long ago that God is much better at all this than I am, so I don't try to convince people on religion anymore. He, he does his work very well uh, on his own uh, with that. Um, I will just simply tell you that the, the Jesus I was first introduced to in that little country Methodist church was the Jesus of what I now call the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount, who spoke about the importance of being a peacemaker, of loving your neighbor, of caring for the poor and the marginalized. This was the Jesus I was first introduced to. And I said, that sounds pretty good. And decided to learn more about him. And as I did, I felt a greater and greater desire to identify with that in every way in my life. And so I eventually pursued Christian ministry. And that in itself is a story. Um, one of the first books I read uh, as a newly professed Christian in the Methodist Church was uh, The Cost of Discipleship by a young German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you know his story, you know he was a Lutheran minister in Germany during the rise of Hitler and Nazism. His father was a famous psychiatrist. In fact, if you drive into Berlin today, you're, you'll no doubt see uh, the Bonhoeffer Institute, not named for the minister uh, that I've devoted so much of my professional life to, but to his father, the famous atheist psychiatrist, uh, who in many ways was the anti-Freud, uh, had his own uh, system. Uh, you know, of uh, psychiatric science. And, uh, and his is, is a, a, quite a story uh, in itself. But Bonhoeffer seemed to embody all of these virtues that I was learning from the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount that I had encountered in that little uh, country church. And so 
Uh, I never forgot that book. Uh, it was seminal uh, in my life. And uh, then something else happened. In the 1980s, uh, a kind of um, storm, political and social storm, blew through my world and kind of swept me up in uh, a sort of hurricane twister, and I found myself landing in a whole nother place. Uh, it came, uh, you'll read the story, uh, when I was invited to the annual convention of the National Association of Evangelicals. By now, I am an ordained evangelical minister. I'm very active in the evangelical world, and I'm invited uh, to the uh, convention where Ronald Reagan would uh, be the first sitting president to address a national body of evangelical leaders. And I felt the presidential aura and the glow. And I don't think we can underestimate what it does to a community that feels marginalized and this is an aspect of evangelicalism that I think is little appreciated. We carry a kind of memory, institutional memory with us that goes back to the origins of modern, well, very modern evangelicalism, dating to the turn of the last century, 1906 uh, specifically, uh, when there was a revival out in Los Angeles called the Azusa Street Revival that gave birth to what we kind of know today as the sort of evangelicalism that is talked about in the news. And uh, that had been building for some time, but it reached a crescendo. Uh, but we were always the uneducated clergy, the little humble uh, clapboard church often literally on the other side of the tracks, um, attracted the lower classes, lower working and poor class. So we kind of had, uh, you know, a feeling of um, being marginalized, disconnected from uh, American life and carried that with us. So now you have a president of the United States affirming you en masse in a very powerful way. And I felt it. And it drew me and led to what Steve referred to as my second conversion from the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount to what I define as Ronald Reagan Republican religion, which is a distinctly different uh, religious uh, philosophy than, than the one I had first embraced. That would take me on a 30-year trajectory and eventually uh, lead me here to Washington, D.C., where, among other things, uh, I would engage with several presidential administrations, uh, many, many uh, generations of leaders of Congress, and uh, lastly, the justices of the Supreme Court, where I took on a quasi 
chaplaincy role, particularly with the conservatives. I was not as warmly received by the progressives and liberals on the court. Um, although it was always convivial, always congenial, uh, always polite. Um, I, I will tell you this, just because I love to tell the story, and I hope you appreciate it. Um, and tell me any time I start boring you. Just go, you're boring us, and I will change course, or I'll let you speak. Um, before I departed that uh, work on Capitol Hill, I, I had a very, very poignant experience when uh, I was in, at the private funeral for uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia, with whom I had built, as you can imagine, uh, a deep uh, friendship. In some ways, he had become a kind of father figure to me. And I was standing in the room uh, with his open coffin, the only time it, he would be visible. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot going on in, in my head and in my heart at that moment, but I turned over towards the coffin and I noticed the only other person in the room with me was um, Justice Elena Kagan. And she was standing looking at him and she had been weeping, that was clear. And I approached her very deferentially and, and carefully. And she turned to me and she said, I loved this man. I loved this man. And that was the human side that I will confess I failed to fully appreciate in those years. I failed to foster and nurture as I should have, but it was a very, very meaningful moment for me and it really signaled my departure out of that, not just out of that professional charge that I had, but out of that whole um, religious culture that I had embraced and espoused for 30 plus, almost 35 years. So that was part of the segue uh, that would lead me to uh, now what I call my third conversion. And you can read about that. Um, and I don't mind being just this much of a spoiler to tell you that the real seal of that deal occurred at a Passover table uh, at a Seder. Uh, with a rabbi friend who stunned me with a revelation uh, that evening during the course of that Seder. Uh, something deeply, deeply personal that, um, that interfaced with my world in a very, very personal way. And it was a very shocking, very painful, revelation for me, but the graciousness of this rabbi uh, and his family uh, brought me across the finish line. 
So in so many ways, Rabbi, I, I do not feel like a stranger here at all. Um, so many things began and ended in exactly this kind of setting. <laughs>